Listen, we are just beginning a new uh, fall series working through Paul's letter to Titus. Titus uh, was left on the island of Crete uh, so that he could set in order the churches that had been planted on that island by Paul and Titus and probably others working together. One of the main things that Titus was responsible for in setting things in order was to establish elders in each of those churches. Elders who would help to lead and guide and shepherd and do the job of an elder in those particular churches. And last week particularly, we we looked at the aspect that in the New Testament, that word elder is plural. It's elders. We talked about the idea of a plurality of elders that are to lead, working together, a group of qualified men who together work to care for, to shepherd, and encourage the flock. But what is an elder supposed to do? We didn't hit on that very much last week. What is the job description of an elder? There is another very important question that we have to ask in here as well. What is an elder supposed to be? It's not just what is an elder supposed to do. As a matter of fact, the New Testament probably says more about what an elder is supposed to be as opposed to what the elder is supposed to do. And we're going to look at what the elder is to be next week and the week after when we slide back into Titus. Chapter 1, verse 6 through 9, so you can read ahead, study ahead on those particular verses. But we're going to deviate a little bit today to answer the question, what is an elder supposed to do? And that's where 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4 come in. I'm going to read these. You can follow along as I read. Peter writing says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Let's pray for God's blessing as we consider his word together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. And as a church, we want more than anything, Lord, to abide in your word, to be in obedience to your word. And help us as we consider these truths today, what it is to be an elder, what is the role of an elder. Lord, help us uh, to take those truths to heart. Help us to long for today the coming of the chief shepherd. And it is in his name we pray. Amen. In his opening remarks, Peter addresses his intended audience. Uh, Though the audience of the entire letter, if you were to go back to chapter 1, says he's writing to the elect exiles. In this particular portion of his letter, he, he focuses in on the elders who are ruling in the churches. I exhort the elders among you. And he has a specific word of encouragement that he wants to share with them. And I love the sensitivity that Peter uses as he introduces this section. He does not identify himself as an apostle in this section. Notice what he identifies himself as, an elder. Peter says, I I am a a fellow elder. He he assures the audience he is not upper management writing a memo from the 50th floor corner office to all of the peons below. He is with them. He knows what it is to be an elder. He knows that life. He is a fellow elder. He also qualifies it and says, I'm one who witnessed the sufferings of Christ. Peter was there. 
Now, there's some debate, was he there when Jesus was on the cross? Because the Bible only mentions the women in John, and we don't really know that, but he was there in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was there throughout the trial of Jesus outside of the house of Caiaphas. He watched the sufferings of Jesus unfold. But why does that matter? Why does he mention it here? It's an encouraging reminder for these, these elders, these Christians who are presently suffering. That he, he gets it and he's reminding them, listen, you're in good company. You're, you're following Jesus in suffering. He wants them to make that connection. There's hope in that. He also says, I'm one who was a partaker of the glory that's going to be revealed. You see, weeping, suffering may endure for the night, but joy and glory come in the morning. We have to consider this, this original audience that he's writing to. These are people who have had to flee their homes. These are people who are exiles, he says, because of persecution, uh, because of famine, because of all sorts of acts of suffering that are going on in this particular time frame. And he's writing to them. And, and, and this, this story, Peter, Peter says, I was a, a partaker of the glory. Think about it. He was there on the Mount of Transfiguration. When Jesus unzips his, his earth suit, and, and shows his full glory. Peter says, I've seen it, and it's good, and it's something for us to look forward to. He caught a glimpse of it. You see, sometimes in this life, well, probably a lot of time in this life, it just feels like we're spinning our wheels. We're just getting more and more bogged down, and things continue to get worse around us. And that's, that's the way we, we feel and experience this. Now, now, granted, the people in the first century would have said the same thing, and people in the second century would have said the same thing, and you could go on up until our particular century. But what he reminds us of here is, is, is what Paul said in another letter, that no, you're not just stuck, you're moving from one type of glory to another type of glory. God has a direction. God has a purpose. We're partakers of this glory. And so, so he, he, he introduces these, these instructions and these commands with this sensitive heart of hope, reminding them. And then he goes into the elders' responsibilities. Now, how many of you remember your hardest first day on a job? Now, if you're like me, you've had different jobs throughout your life. You've worked for different companies, maybe even did different things in those jobs. And, and maybe you remember your hardest first day job. I remember my hardest first day on a job. I was uh, starting at a company called Pence Brothers Drilling Company in Glenpool, Oklahoma. I grew up as a teenager and even as younger than a teenager working in the oil fields with my dad, but in a different setting. I never worked on drilling rigs. And so I showed up at the shop 645 on a Monday morning. Larry Pence was there to greet me, said, hey, we're going to go put you on a rig today uh, because we got a hand down. And so he handed me a hard hat. We hopped in the truck. We stopped at one rig on the way uh, just to drop some supplies off. And I'm sitting here looking at this thinking, I've never seen most of this stuff. We hop in, head another hour south, and we show up. And these are air rigs. So they're loud. So they, they break open the earth and pierce a hole through the earth with air. And so they have three massive compressors. I'm not talking about a compressor that sits in the corner of your garage. I'm talking about a compressor that sits on the back of a semi-trailer. And they're blaring and air's moving and drill bits are pounding. And I can't hear anything. And so they take me in. I get introduced to Doyle, who was the driller. Jamie, who was the first hand. And then Larry Pence just leaves. 
And I'm sitting here, I've got really clean clothes on. I haven't gotten dirty yet. And they're starting to tell me, hey, go do this. And I'm like, I can't hear you. <laughs> and I don't know what that is. Or <laughs> they'll say, get, get the Y wrench. I don't know what a Y wrench is. All sorts of unknowns for me during that day. Uh, Doyle was angry. Uh, Jamie was frustrated because I was so green and had no idea what I was doing. In time, I would catch on. But, but you know what? When I think back on that, why was it so hard? Because I just didn't know what to do. I didn't know the terminology. That, that's, that's what made it a bad first day. And even more important than that, I was putting myself in danger. This is not a, this is not a, a floof job. This is heavy equipment. This is all sorts of dangerous things around me. I was putting the crew in danger because I didn't know what I was doing. I, I put the job in danger. Uh, there was a later job where I actually messed up so bad that we had to like pull all the pipe out of the ground, move everything over about 30 feet, and start over again. Larry Pence was not happy with me that day. Uh, but uh, that's another story for another day, maybe one on redemption and forgiveness, something along those lines. But a church, a church who have elders who do not know their job and their responsibilities is in grave danger as well. And that's why Paul, when he was making his last trip towards Jerusalem and he stopped off in Miletus, kind of there on the, the southern edge of Turkey, he called for the elders of Ephesus to come back down. He said, come travel. And what did he do when they came back down? Talking Acts 20, he instructed them again on the very things that he'd instructed them on time and time again. Watch for the flock, care for the flock, watch out for the wolves. It's why Paul would write to Titus and Timothy, Timothy twice, because he wanted to remind them and encourage them in the importance of their role and their responsibility. And both of them are instructed to remind the elders and teach the elders these things. And it's why Peter writes this particular paragraph. He wants to make clear the elders' responsibility. And I can assure you, after, after 18 years of pastoral elder ministry, it is easy to lose focus and get distracted. As a matter of fact, it's easier now, 18 years in, than it was when I was young and driven and focused. And it's one of Satan's number one tactics that he uses uh, to move us off base. And so what are the responsibilities that Peter lists? You can see him right there clearly in the text, beginning in verse two. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Now, here's a question. How many of you are shepherds? How many of you guys have sheep walking around in your backyard? Nobody? How many of you even know a shepherd? Like you know somebody, they care for sheep. Do we have anybody in there? Okay, we've got, we've got a handful of those. You see, this idea of a shepherd, it's pretty foreign to us, right? I mean, we, we, don't, we don't have sheep. Uh, we don't know other people who have lots of sheep. And so when the scriptures use this, we really have to dig in and imagine. Now, for the first century believers and all the way through many centuries after Jesus, they got it. I mean, sheep were everywhere. People were, were hurting them. It was, a, it was part of their life. It's where they got their clothes. It's where they got other things that they enjoyed in life. So they were immediately connected, but we have to think about it a little bit. The role of a shepherd, let me give you these four things, is to guide, to guard, to feed, and to fold. The shepherd's job is to guide. To guide the sheep means to lead them where they need to go, not necessarily where they want to go, 
but to the place where they need to go. It is a shepherd's job to lead you towards Christ, towards Christ's likeness. Now that's not our natural inclination. That is all of the spirit, but the shepherd's job is to step in and guide in those particular directions. Second, it's to guard the sheep, to protect them from outside enemies who would wish to exploit and devour them. As a matter of fact, Satan is a roaring lion walking about, seeking whom he may devour. The New Testament authors warn of wolves who will disguise themselves coming into the churches and join the flock. We, we just finished this last spring, the book of Galatians. There were wolves that had entered into the churches in Galatia. And so Paul it, it encouraged them, you've got to remove them. He works to expose them. The shepherd has to guide from false teachers and tempters who would draw, draw the sheep away. I've had to tell people in the past, you probably shouldn't read that book. That's not a great author. You probably shouldn't listen to that particular person on the radio or on the TV because, yeah, they have a lot of truth about what they say, but there's also some things that are dynamically wrong with what they understand of Scripture. It's offering those, those warnings to people. Many of you in this room, and I, I found this incredibly humbling and, and uh, challenging at times, many of you come from backgrounds like me where, where legalism ruled the house. And, and, and to, to work through those things and come to a clear understanding of what biblical grace looks like, it's as if we've been a hospital for that here. And, and trying to shepherd people through the pain and the hurt of trying to earn our own salvation instead of trusting in the grace and the mercy that's found in Jesus Christ. But shepherds also have to protect the sheep from, from sheep. Sheep are notoriously dumb. It, it, it is no wonder that, that this became such a great example as you read through the Old Testament in God's people and into the New Testament of what sheep are like. Uh, they are not like other domesticated animals. Maybe you think of a dog or something like that that can be trained well and begin to obey. They easily lose their bearings. They easily wander from the flock. Sheep, sheep usually aren't very aware of their surroundings, so they're, they're quickly endangered by their surroundings. Yeah, some of you saw this, this video clip that we're going to show. It went around the, the web a while back, and it will probably come back around again. But I wanted to show you. It's just a really good example of sheep. And so, Nathan, you don't mind to pull that one up. There's no sound to this, by the way. I'll narrate. No, I won't. <laughs> I think there's no sound because you don't want to know what they were saying after that. That's a sheep for you. That's how we endanger ourselves. We have shepherds are responsible to guide the sheep. They're to guard the sheep. They're to feed the sheep. In Israel, vegetation is few and far between. You know, here we could think, man, I get some sheep. We'll just throw them out here in this field. There's plenty to eat on. But if you've ever seen pictures or been to Israel, to be a shepherd was a hard job. You would have to go miles or miles to find a good field or a good place where you could find vegetation to feed the sheep. It was a, it was a job. It was a full-time job. It's why they, they stayed with the sheep most of the time. 
Without food, guess what happens to sheep? They die. They die. And so the shepherd has to work diligently to provide for the sheep necessary nourishment. And our food is the truth that comes from the word of God. And a shepherd's responsibility is to feed the sheep from the word of God. Not, not his own content, not his own commentary, but what does God have to say about grace and mercy and forgiveness and justice and love? It's to teach you these things, but also to teach you to, to feed yourself and to continue to grow and then to, to feed others and disciple and, and pour into the lives of others. The, the beautiful thing is, is I got these from, um, I think his name is Rennie, wrote a book on eldership. He said there's sinning sheep, there's wandering sheep, there's limping sheep, there's fighting sheep, there's biting sheep. There's all sorts of different kinds of sheep. Some of you may fall into all of those categories here today. But there's one word of truth that feeds all of those sheep. There's one Savior that, that stands in place of all of those sheep. And it's a beautiful thing to be a part of. The last point about a shepherd is this. The shepherd is responsible to, to fold the sheep. Um, that doesn't mean like bend them in half. Uh, that's not what we're talking about. To fold is to take them into the sheepfold. And I don't want to push this point too far, but, but it is a pretty beautiful point. The sheepfold is a safe place where the sheep find rest. Part of my job as a shepherd is to encourage you to gather together in the sheepfold to find rest. It's what Sunday mornings are supposed to be. As we gather together at 10 o'clock, it's a place where we gather together to find our rest in Jesus. And some could say, well, I find rest out on the lake, and, and that's, that's, that's fine, but it is a different kind of rest than you find when you gather together with God's people, and there's a mutual encouragement that comes together through corporate singing, through prayers that are prayed. You know, this is another reason gathering the sheep in the fold that I, I sometimes stand up here and beg you to come to Wednesday night. Because Wednesday night is a, is a sheepfold in the middle of the week to come together in the middle of the chaos for, for an hour of time in fellowship and in prayer and opening up the word of God. Oh, it brings rest to the soul in the middle of the chaos. You see, becoming a church member is, is partly about submitting your, your spiritual life to the care of the shepherds, of the elders who are shepherding among you. The second thing, though, that we find in Peter is this. They're to exercise oversight. It's the, the responsibility that we see listed very clearly. Same word we looked at last week, this idea of being an overseer. Um, so it carries similar weight to that of shepherding, that of somebody who is watching over the flock. But it also has this dynamic of, of one who has to rule, one who has to have some aspect of authority. The elders are responsible and will give an account for the oversight of the church. And that includes everything from who do you position in, in ministries to teach the kids? Are they qualified? Are they equipped? Do the musicians have the things that they need? Do bills get paid for the church? These are things that elders have responsibility over ultimately in the care of the church. 
We noted last week that elders are called to rule. We quoted from, from Hebrews 13, which you, you have in your bulletin, where it says, submit, submit to those who have rule over you because they watch for your souls as ones who will give an account for that. They will be held accountable for how they cared for you and do this so that it's a joy in serving and doing life together. I'm paraphrasing the end of that. But this call to oversee comes with a few qualifying points. We'll work through these rather quickly. These are areas where elders can be very tempted in these directions. Peter doesn't mention them by accident. He, he knows the tendencies that list here. He says, first of all, don't do it under compulsion, but do it willingly. Not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you do it. If an elder is reluctant, a reluctant draftee, and they're only serving um, out of compulsion to please others. Maybe it's because somebody begged them to do it. Uh, maybe, maybe it's a compulsion for the power or the, the prestige that may come with that particular title or any other fleshly compulsion. If they're driven by any of those things, they should not be an elder, is what Peter says. An elder must serve willingly, only driven by a love for the Lord Jesus Christ and a love for people the sheep that the Lord Jesus Christ has entrusted to him. This willingness is the only way God would have it be. That's, that's Peter's little clause there. Growing up, I grew up being compulsed. I'm making up a word there. Compelled would be a better word, but I'm going to use Peter's word. I grew up being compulsed to go into the ministry. Uh, I would go to youth camps, and they would stand up there. You need to surrender to the ministry. You need to be preachers. You need to be missionaries. And I was being compulsed about that. Um, I never felt that. I never felt that, that compulsion. I, I felt a little guilty sometimes. But it wasn't until my first year in college, Connor State College, Oklahoma, got involved with the Baptist Student Union and in that spring semester, my first year, or that, yeah, the spring semester, my first year of college, I had the opportunity to stand up in front of about 80 youth from different youth groups that had come together and I spoke for about 20 minutes on the crucifixion of Jesus. A few weeks later, my pastor at my home church gave me an opportunity to speak um, to the adult class in a section of the book of Jonah. You know what happened in those, those two instances? My perception of people changed. It was almost like when, when Jesus is there in Jerusalem and he, he's weeping over and he says, oh, you're like, you're like sheep without a shepherd. I began to see people as people who needed shepherd. They needed someone to guide. They needed someone to offer instruction. They needed somebody to open up God's word and, and feed them and help them through that. And, and since that day, that's what I wanted to do. That's what I was compelled to do, not by a compulsion of others outside, but by the compulsion of the Lord. He also says this, don't do it for shameful gain, but do it eagerly. Herbert writes this, he says, it's unacceptable to enter the ministry merely because it offers a respectable and intellectually stimulating way of gaining a livelihood. Ministry can't be primarily about gaining money, gaining, gaining social standing or, or power. 
Eagerness or zeal to serve others should precede any other considerations for personal profit. Consider Jesus' own words here. Here's John chapter 10. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And I think we often stop there. That's such a powerful statement about our Lord Jesus. But then he says this. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, he sees the wolf coming and he leaves the sheep and he flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand who cares nothing for the sheep. What's Jesus getting at? What's the motivation of wanting to shepherd people? Is it just to be a hired hand? Because if that's what it is, then when the wolf comes, that's the first guy out of the room. When the danger presents itself, when life gets hard, when the ministry is tough, when the persecution comes, when the government says you can't say that, that's the first person that's gone. What motivates a person to want to be an elder? The truth is, as a church, as we're looking to make these transitions and add in elders, we're looking for those who are already doing this. We're looking for those who are already shepherding people. The third thing he says is don't do it by domineering over those in your charge, but be examples to the flock. The simple and often true saying is this power corrupts. And that's no different within the confines of a church as it would be within a business. Elders are entrusted with power and authority from the chief elder, Jesus. But elders must strive to avoid misusing that power and authority that's been given to them. They must not, as Jesus says, lord it over the people. Because we're not the Lord. He's Lord. We're under shepherds. You know, there's a lot of talk right now about those who have suffered spiritual abuse by domineering spiritual authorities, whether that was pastors or other ministry leaders. And I have no doubt that many of those stories are absolutely true. Because I understand how this works. I understand this is why Peter writes it. Now, it doesn't mean that leaders are never called to, to put their foot down. It doesn't mean that I'll, I'll never have to put my foot down on an issue or I may use your middle name sometime uh, to really call you out on a particular issue. It may happen. I, I don't know that I know your middle names, but maybe I need to learn them. Because sometimes there are dangers that have to be addressed. It's why Paul wrote to the Corinthians so, so forcefully. It's why he wrote to the Galatians so forcefully. Because he needed to put his foot down. They were in danger. That's why, why John wrote some of the letters that he wrote to the churches. You, you, you read those introductions in John 2 through 3, and some of them are, are very pointed, very specific. But leaders must be humble, sometimes even, don't cringe, pliable, willing to bend, willing to move, depending on the situation. And I and any other elder must model this because this is what we find in Jesus himself. Shepherds lead. They don't drive. They lead. And so as I even think through that, I think, who's equipped for that? I mean, I have to look in the mirror every day. I might stand up here and look really good in my watermelon shirt on a Sunday morning, but Monday's different. And Thursday's different. See, our hope is not in ourselves. Our hope is not in our own capabilities. 
but rather in the spirit of Jesus that works through us. And that's the hope that that Peter points us towards. Look at verse 4 again. This is such an important verse. When the chief shepherd appears. When the chief shepherd appears. Jesus, the chief shepherd, will appear. Jesus, the chief shepherd, has not left us, despite his non-appearance yet, he has not left us powerless, but he has given us the spirit who calls, who who qualifies, who who equips and gifts us. I wholeheartedly believe that, that on that day, 24, 25 years ago, the spirit equipped me, called me, gifted me in this particular direction of life. Now that's not everybody's calling. We know how the spiritual gifts work. It's it's not everybody's calling. But what we understand from Peter's statement here is this. Elders are not our hope. Pastors are not our hope. Now I know sometimes you may call me in the middle of the night. I've been at the hospital with some of you in the middle of the night. I've been through some of the, the deepest, darkest valleys some of you have gone through in your life with you. And I love that I can do that. I don't love those circumstances and I don't love the pain that's involved with it. But one thing that I think everybody in here understands, even in those moments, I'm not your hope. This shepherd points in those moments to the chief shepherd. And on repeat, constantly pointing to the one who is our hope the Lord Jesus Christ. Our hope is in the chief shepherd who's going to return and he's going to rescue his church, his bride. The chief shepherd is coming back and with John we can say in course, even so, come Lord Jesus because it simply seems that it's getting harder and harder to be a faithful follower. Elders who rule well will receive an unfading crown of glory. There's a picture here that we find in other places in the New Testament. Uh, in, in the games that they would play, whether they were athletic events, and I think probably even in other achievements, if somebody was going to be honored, they would, they would put a wreath of some tree branches and leaves on their head and, and recognize them and honor them. But, but what would happen to that wreath? Eventually, the leaves would fall off It would fade away. They may just take it, use it as some kindling at some point. But those who rule well are promised an unfading crown of glory. But the reality is it it can't be about a crown. I'm a firm believer that 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 picture that we find that that any crowns we receive uh, when we're in heaven, we're not going to be like, hey, look at me. We're going to be laying them at the feet of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. There's no recognition for me in this. It's all of his grace and it's all of his mercy and all of his goodness. A better shepherd, a better elder, he's coming. It's okay to say amen to that. Yes, I need that shepherd to come. Amen to that shepherd's return elders are shepherds 
Elders are, are overseers of the ministry of the church, avoiding those common pitfalls that Peter addresses. Now, a question that came up last week, and I told you, as we move through this stuff and we're, we're trying to add pieces to this puzzle, moving forward as a church, trying to become a biblical church, um, well, question that came up, great question, a couple times, what about deacons? We didn't say anything about deacons last week or, or this week. Here's, here's the distinction. We'll, t- we'll, deal with this, um, we'll deal with this more specifically uh, in coming weeks. Elders are called to rule, have authority, shepherd. Deacons are called to serve. Service. It's what the term deacon means. It's the best distinction. They're not given power, authority. Now, in our history as a church and in the history of many American churches, that has been mixed up quite a bit. This church used to be, before I was even here, deacon ruled. That was the way the bylaws even said it. The deacons rule, the deacons have the authority and the responsibility. That's not what we see in the pages of Scripture. To be a deacon is to be a servant to the people and to serve the church. We'll unpack that a little more, but I thought I need to address that. So why is this sermon important? Why are we talking about this day today? Why would we deviate from Titus to come here and consider the role of an elder? One, because I need accountability. I'm the elder, the shepherd here. This is my job description. As a matter of fact, I'm gonna share this sermon with my dad who's on a pulpit committee for the church I grew up in because he had asked me a few weeks ago, hey, do you have like a job description somewhere that, that I could look at and then maybe we could write up one? I'm like, no, First Peter 5, you know, I, just, just some of those things. But, but this is it. And I need to be held accountable. Am I being a shepherd? Am I being an overseer? And because those men with a heart to shepherd and oversee in a Christ-like way, those are the ones we're looking for. It's who, Titus, it's who Titus was looking for to put in those positions on the island of Crete. And it's who we're looking for, men here at Meadowview who have that heart. But I can't help but think, as Peter writes this, shepherd the flock, there's a there's a burned memory in his mind that just churns and plays on repeat. It's a memory that we have recorded for us in John 21. Is after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, after Peter had denied Jesus outside of the house of Caiaphas. And Peter and the other disciples, they're back on the boats and they're fishing. And they look over to the shore and it's morning time and they see Jesus and he's, he's cooking up some cooking up some breakfast. He says, you guys come and eat. And I love Peter's response. You know, he, he just jumps out of the boat. Like, I'll get there faster than you guys. And he swims to Jesus. And they have breakfast. They have some small talk, I'm sure. But then Jesus grabs Peter and they start walking down the Galilean seashore. And he says, Peter, do you love me? Yes. Remember what Jesus said? Feed my sheep. And they go a little further and he says, Peter, do you love me? Yes, feed my sheep. And he asks him a third time to match the three denials. And he says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter begins to weep. 
He says, Lord, you know everything. You know I love you. And he says to him again, then feed my sheep. The calling to shepherding and eldering is not a call that can be easily dismissed. One of the key questions men we have to ask is God encouraging me here today to be one of those people who feed his sheep. I've got friends who were seven years old. We don't have our seven-year-olds up here. But we've got our middle schoolers. I've got my own boys. But when they were seven years old, they clearly heard Jesus say, you're going to feed my sheep. And they dedicated their life to it since. Feeding the sheep. So as a church, we have to pray about a few things. We have to pray for wisdom as we consider who is called who is qualified in this particular area. Those are not things we ignore. Those are things we'll dig into next week. We gotta pray that we make wise decisions as a church moving forward in in selection and in, in recognizing what this looks like for our congregation. And we have to ask that question. Every man has to ask the question, is God calling me to leadership in this particular area of life? Feed my sheep. I'm going to ask you to bow with me this morning. I know these last couple sermons have been a little different. A lot of information. But we're moving in a direction and they're necessary pieces of the puzzle. Necessary blocks and steps for us to take. And so if nothing else today, I just ask you to pray that God would give us wisdom as a church. But also have no doubt that many of you in the room, you're here today and you're struggling and you need to be reminded of the hope that we have in our chief shepherd. The Savior that's been given to us in Jesus Christ. And, and this is the time for you to cry out to him, to plead for grace and mercy because you're tired, you're broken, full of sin your life's in shambles he's our hope cry out to him even now so I want to give you a moment to pray if you need to talk to somebody you want to pray with somebody if you come right over here to the room to my right it says prayer room on the door we'd love to, to pray with you answer any questions you have you can do that in the silence of this moment but I want to give you guys some time to pray so let's take that now Father, we thank you for the good shepherd, Jesus, who has laid down his life for us. Who did not run away from us and does not run away in our problems, but he ran right into the fire. He took the punishment of hell, the penalty of our sin, upon himself so that we might know freedom. God, we thank you for that example in Jesus. We thank you for his love. Lord, help me to be a shepherd like Jesus is a shepherd. Help me to love people so deeply. Help me to be burdened 
with the burdens of others. Help me to rejoice with the joy of others. I pray that for all of us, God. But as, as we consider our church and we consider that, that, that Christ is our head and that, that this is not our possession, but it is his, we want to, we want to move forward and, and be biblical, but we need wisdom. As we consider the placement of elders, the qualifications, the calling. So we beg you that you would give us wisdom. Thank you that we're not left to wonder what, what an elder is to do, but it is listed for us. It is, it is given to us. And so help us to be faithful, to live in obedience to it. God, thank you for, for the attentiveness of, of your people this morning. Spirit, we thank you for the work uh, that you have done already, but I have no doubt you will continue to do in the hearts of people. We, we trust in it. We thank you for Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.